0: Welcome to the Soccer Camp. It's time to break down the barriers. A show dedicated to creativity, adaptations, and purpose. Jim Patness, the greatest moment I've seen in Premier
1: League football.
0: Real coaches. Real talk. Unbelievable. Real growth. Now, welcome your host, Roberto O.B. Hernandez. Hey, what's up, everybody? Welcome to another episode of The Soccer Cat. This is episode number three, and just like the first two, we bring you a superstar guest to coach. Again, it's going to be real. It's going to be real growth. You know, nothing's going to be held back, and he's just going to tell you the daily struggles that he has and all the challenges that he's faced in his career and all his accomplishments as well. We've worked together in the past. He's from England, so you're going to recognize the accent. You know, everything he says is going to sound ten times better. Welcome, Dan Richards. We work together at CPP. He also has the experience with DA. So, Dan, say what's up to everybody.
1: Hey, Rob. Hey, guys. Um, yeah, really appreciate uh, being on, Rob, and looking forward to it. And always happy to, to give opinions and probably upset some people along the way so looking forward to it and and hope it'll be a good episode
0: hey like we said dude there's a little bit too much of the political culture you know correctness going on pc so uh in soccer and sport i think that's the one thing that we have just be blunt and to the point and i think honesty is the best policy so i mean just going into it dan um, obviously i mentioned that uh where you're from but can you mention you know kind of your childhood uh what brought you over to the states and just kind of how you where you went from playing into coaching and kind of where that's taken you along the years?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, so yeah, originally from from London, uh, actually from from Tottenham in North London. Uh, so Spurs fan, uh, maybe not the most entertaining soccer we're playing right now. Yeah, tell me about it. But, uh, you know, we'll see, we'll see. Um, but yeah, I mean, obviously grew up uh, like most, most kids in England kind of uh, playing the sport, watching the sport. Um, had the normal thing of, you know, playing with little kind of, boys clubs teams high school all that stuff uh, obviously had dreams of making it pro but ultimately not good enough you know and that's that's unfortunately reality some of us just aren't that good so uh, still love the sport now still love to to be involved in it and obviously that's why I got into coaching um, had the uh, the opportunity to, to do some kind of like summer work in America while I was studying in England so kind of like a three-month working vacation um coming out here working camps kind of Got to see what what kind of the American soccer culture was like back then when I first came out. Finished my degree in England. Uh, got a sports degree. Um, came back out for another summer. I felt great. Kind of uh, keep doing this for a bit longer. Managed to work with some uh, some good people. Got some good networking, good connections. Uh, and ultimately uh, it was then a decision of do I want to go back home and get a real job or do I want to kind of just stay out here and, and live the life in California and, and get to coach in the sun and, and get to have a living working with uh within the soccer industry so very fortunate um definitely uh learning a lot as we go along and, and still learning but it's been a good journey so far and hopefully it keeps on going
0: yeah what was your kind of first initial reaction when you kind of got here to america especially back then um i don't want to state your age but what what year was that when you got here
1: <laughs> so my first summer out here was actually 2004 uh it was the first summer i worked out here uh First thing was, uh, to be honest, was actually just how welcoming families were. Because we worked with a company where you actually stayed with families while working a camp in an area, and I actually was lucky enough to go around to like ten different states, travelling from one week to another doing camps. And and yeah, the the kind of the culture of the American soccer family uh, was just an extremely welcoming one. And working on those camps, everyone you kind of came across, they obviously they heard the accent and they thought that was uh, really <laughs> impressive and amazing when. You know, it's nothing special, but it, it did kind of uh, make us like a, a mini celebrity in some places, especially into small little towns. Um, yeah, everyone really, really welcoming, really enjoyed it. Uh, and then on the soccer sense, it was coming as a, a Brit coming across. You very much saw, you know, what do Americans know about soccer? You know, they're all going to be terrible. Uh, and you got to see a wide range. You did see some of that. You saw some <laughs> absolutely clueless people, and and people who didn't maybe uh, right reasons, but just didn't really know what they were doing. But then also some really uh really good uh, soccer people really intelligent people and and people who love the sport as well so i think you kind of just like any country you see you see a lot of uh, different aspects of of sport through through the eyes of the different families that are involved in it and say with the the players as well so yeah first impression may have been a little bit jaded um but ultimately was uh i think it was it was a very good one and, and hence why i stayed out there Wow, that's
0: pretty cool. I mean, back in 2004, dude, I think I was playing U11 at that time still. <laughs> Cheers uh, for that. Yeah, make me feel old. Thank you. <laughs> um, no, but thanks for sharing. I, I, I think, like you said, it, it kind of was, uh, you know, two different cultures, right? Especially in the soccer world. Um, I think we've grown tremendously as a nation in the past, you know, since MLS has been around, what, 25 years. Um, and I think, like you said, a lot of coaches have grown and like what I hear a lot about the American coaches is that coaches is that although they may not know everything, there are some that know a lot, right? But although they may not know everything, they're very, very hungry and always wanting to learn, right? And they're eager to make up for the time lost, you know, and we hope that, you know, soccer does become a mainstream sport and it is a part of the main culture. Um, and that's why I kind of wanted to go back a little bit to your childhood. What do you think the biggest difference is? Um, you know, last week we had um, – firm speak about the difference between brazilian culture growing up and american culture so what do you think the difference is in the youth side um you know in english culture and american culture you know somebody that's you know growing up everyday soccer
1: yeah i think that's that's probably the biggest difference right there is it's an everyday thing um i think growing up as a kid in england the first thing you do when you got to school was either you're playing a game of soccer or you're you know you're chatting to your your friends about oh did you see this game or you see that result or you're making fun of them because their team lost and your team won whatever it was um so i just think it was coming out here you see the there's so many other things that a lot of the kids especially where where i'm based in kind of orange county that they have uh, the opportunity to do you maybe don't have that the same way in england or maybe not when i was there. It's probably changed a lot in the, the time i've been out here um and i think that's the same when you look at uh, the sport overall when you look at fans and, and fan culture you know in england you have your team, you follow your team, you know, you get a lot of stick about it. Just being a Spurs fan, trust me, you get a lot of stick about it, but it is your team and it's, you know, it maybe part of where you're from or you have family who've been supporting it as well all their life. Um, I think in American professional sports, you know, maybe that's not quite the same. You know, you have franchises who will move from one city to another, you know, because they can get a better stadium, they can get more money there, whatever it might be. Um, I actually think the in American sport, I think actually the closest thing to sports culture in england uh, that america is more like the college system because you have that sense of pride of the college because oh, my dad and my mom was an alumni of that school mm-hmm. my grandparents were alumni um and so i'm or even if that particular uh, person doesn't go to that school they have a family heritage that did so they still support it they probably watched all their games growing up um so i think that's that's the closest maybe american Kind of sport has. I, I don't think professional it does the same way. Although I do think Amer- you know, English sport is going that way. You're now seeing with so much money in the Premier League and things like that, you're seeing more and more people who maybe follow players than teams the way it used to be. Uh, nothing like that ever before. Uh, there's now people who say, well, I support this team, but my second team is whoever because oh, they just signed so and so and I really like that player. Uh, that would never have happened when I was a kid at school. It's like if they played for Arsenal, you hate that player. Yeah. I don't care how good they are; you just hate them. It is what it is. You can respect what they do, is like in your own time. But ultimately, no, you don't like that team. You don't like those players. I think now, even like you talk about when a uh, big superstars have come to to America, and someone said, "Okay, I'm a, I'm a, you know, I'm a LAFC fan, but I really like Ibrahimovic at Galaxy," someone like that. In England, you now do have people say, "Well, you know, I really I support this team," but. You know, I also really like uh, this manager. I like Pep being at Man City, so I like that team as well. Or I like Liverpool because of, you know, Salah or whatever it might be. So it's changing. Um, and I think that's just part of the the industry and the amount of money that's in the sport now. And also the amount of attention, you know, players and clubs get with social media and all the marketing that goes with it. Um, but, yeah, ultimately, the biggest thing for me is just it was an everyday thing. And it was a family thing and a location thing. Um and then it's also a bit of a territory thing. You know, even with with sport, you have away fans, you know, who travel mm-hmm. to games. So you have that almost that animosity and aggression in stadiums, yeah. which I'm I'm not against. I think there's it's good to have rivalries like that. And yeah. I've been to loads of American sports, whether it be soccer, basketball, football, whatever it is, and great experience, great spectacle, but you don't have that same kind of back and forth with the, the supporters of the other team in the same way. Um it's it's maybe you're seeing it a little bit in, you know, American soccer culture with with certain parts of the country, and I think LFC have done a really good job of trying to build up that kind of more chanting and singing stadium. Yeah. I know Seattle have done a good job as well, but uh, but yeah, that that's probably the biggest biggest difference I think, and I've seen between growing up in in England and seeing the kids out here.
0: Yeah, uh, that's interesting because w- what I wanted to bring up is. From what I've seen, you know, growing up and from, you know, talking to other coaches in the youth game is because the MLS is, and I'll be the first to say, of course, the level isn't like the EPL, right? But it's gotten better. But I think too many youth coaches here don't even encourage their players to watch the MLS or the NWSL. You know, they're like, oh, go watch the other leagues, da-da-da-da. And you're like, I get it. Watch the other leagues as well because they're better quality. But- That passion, the soccer culture isn't going to get created if you don't support, you know, your local team, a team that you can maybe maybe it's two hours away or maybe it's a 20 minute drive that you can actually go and support them. And let's face it. Where's our players best chance? You know, coaching here in the United States, it's the domestic league, right? Whether that's USL, whether that's NISA, NWSL, uh, WPSL, all these leagues is they need the support. You know, because if we want opportunities, a platform, you know, kind of how MLS Next was created, if we want these opportunities for the players, well, we got to make sure they're around for them when they turn professional, right? We got to make sure there's revenue. So do you think that's kind of an issue that youth coaches nowadays kind of like talk down so much on the domestic league rather than just saying, hey, it's not at the level, but we still have to support it?
1: Yeah, it's, it's definitely a tough one because yeah, if you speak to anyone of any sport, they want to watch the best they can. And right now, yeah, if you, you say to someone, okay, watch an MLS game or Premier League or the Liga or, or Bundesliga or whatever it is, um, most will agree, yeah, the MLS is not not quite in that category. But I think it's having to, the ability to go and watch games live is so important because especially for young players, They're actually going to see first-hand and up-close players is going to be, is going to be always be beneficial for them. And and also you create role models. I think what is hard in America is such a big country. And like you said, your local team may be two, three hours away. Well, where I grew up in London alone, you know, there was 14 professional teams and Mm -hmm. I could walk to my local team. And then our biggest rival was only another like five, 10 minutes further away. So it's it's kind of, again, it's just a different culture. Um, I mean, that's even why you get, um, on the college side, you have people UCLA and USC were big rivals, where they're both in the same city. They're both like you can see people wearing the jersey of the other team or going to watch a a rival, uh, watch the rivals at the games and all these things. So, yeah, I think it'd definitely be great if we could get to the point where more and more local uh, teams were able to kind of provide the opportunity for players to watch them. And I think you're starting to see a, a development of that. We've kind of multiple leagues in America and a tiering system. I think that's going to go a long way to help it. Uh, I don't think you can have just the MLS or just the NWSL because ultimately there's only so many teams in the league are spread out over such a huge, huge country. So the more you can have those lower leagues below it and have local teams, and there's some really good ones popping up. Um, Even like where I am in Orange County, you've got a a men's kind of semi-pro, whatever you kind of want to call the standard of it, that play at the the Orange County Great Park. Um, And that's where most of our youth players train. So that's somewhere where they can go and watch a live game. Now, is the standard going to be – the same as the top one absolutely not um but is that something that we can kind of start to build culture hopefully and same with the women's side you have the nwsl which is again spread out over the whole country but then locally you have things like a wpsl or an equivalent so i think you need to to see if there's a way to promote that uh, but always be you know cognizant of the fact that we all want to watch the best and i'll be the first to admit i will watch a premier league game over anything else one, because that's what I grew up with, and it's where the team that I support is. But two, it's also it's a higher level, and, and I want to see the best players I can.
0: Yeah, I, I do agree with that. And I think it's actually even easier to watch than the MLS or the NWSL. Um, well, now they're getting behind a bunch of paywalls, but that's a conversation for another day. Um, <laughs> but kind of how you mentioned the college system, obviously you spent, I think, a total of six seasons at Cal Poly Pomona.
1: This will be, I'll be going into my sixth season, yeah. be going right. into my sixth one uh, for the, uh, the, actually this spring would be my sixth spring and yeah, the four would be my actual sixth. So one. I did my four research correctly. You did well, you did well.
0: <laughs> um, so I kind of, obviously, you spent seasons at Cal Poly Pomona and then you were also coaching in the uh, DA at the time with Patch, right? Um, before Patch, were you at any other club?
1: Yeah, so before before Patch, I was always working at uh, Strikers. Mm-hmm. Uh, on the girls' side, there um, and actually before that was at a all girls club called the Laguna Hills Eclipse, which was a pretty strong, successful girls-only club. Uh, and then that we kind of, as a program, took over what was the Strikers ESNL program. Gotcha. Uh, our director took that over, um, and also was coaching high school as well. I coached boys high school program for for twelve years. I was at the the school, uh, and nine years I ran the program. So uh, when I first came out here, they had the association rule that if you were coaching. Uh, a high school um, program of one gender you weren't able to do club of the same gender so I was doing a Uh, high school 40s program and then coaching girls club which is really what got me involved in the the girls club side before that I actually did one year working with boys and girls club teams before I joined the high school program and um, yeah definitely interesting to see the differences and then build through it and and then going through the DA which on the girls side was short-lived but I also had to to deal with it when i was running the high school program on the boys side because every year i was running that there was the boys da program going on with with players who i did or didn't have access to based on that so kind of uh being able to see a lot of changes like I said, a lot of growth in the, the american soccer kind of industry yeah um, i mean kind of and it's still changing
0: yeah I obviously you had a lot on your plate and you were going back and forth from cal poly pomona because a lot of people don't understand the grind that goes on in the college game you know every everyone thinks College soccer is just like college basketball or college football. It's nowhere near. You don't get uh, nearly <laughs> no that much the amenities, the salary, the the facilities, nowhere near, even if it's on the same campus. So it is a grind. Um, you know, football will have their academic advisor, you know, somebody hired full-time for that, an equipment manager, someone hired full-time, uh, a scouting network, somebody hired full-time, and the coaches are just worried about coaching. no the lower well even some d 1s right nice even some division 1s have to do that and i'm sure uh dan can tell you about the struggles you know tell them about the day to day at the college level you know get go behind the curtains and tell them exactly what you know isn't the glamorous world and then kind of explain to us how you were able to balance kind of you know work and life you know uh cuz obviously that's a great aspect to be able to balance and you don't want to be overworked and you don't want to be just too social you know no work um so you know pull back the curtain about the college game and then how are you able to balance all the different you know organizations
1: yeah i mean it's i mean first i there are a lot of struggles but you know obviously i'm very lucky that the the head coach i work for at pomona is excellent and he's very understanding as well so that helps i think one of the biggest things of any program you work at the people you work with better be there uh, for your best interest as well as the uh, the players' best interest and, and the organization's best interest. So I'm fortunate on that end. Uh, and there's a lot of good staff at Pomona uh, on the administration side as well. But it is a lot because, like I said, we don't maybe have the same resources as a, a D1 basketball or D1 football programme. Um, and it's going to be, you know, whether you are part of your role is, you know, part of the student success academically. Yes, there is a student advisor for the the whole athletics department. But I think, we have to spend a lot of time helping those students as a coach in a, in a program. All the individual sports have their assistant coaches, head coaches work with those players on the academic side. Uh, when it comes to the scouting, like you said, you know, there's going to be you're doing looking at film of, of all the games. You're looking at film of potential student athletes you may want to bring in. You're looking at, you know, schedules about upcoming events and on club soccer. world, there's so many showcases all over the place. You're trying to think, OK, can I watch these players play? You're then talking about when you're maybe driving the van because you've got a game to get, <laughs> to get to, and you're one of the drivers, and you know you're. Uh, that's part of your role. Um, whether it be one of the assistants, is you know having to make sure about the hotel or checking on the which uniforms people are going to be wearing, what colour they're going to have, what colour the goalkeeper going to have. Little things like that. Um, I think there's just so many pieces to it that is spread out over not a huge amount of staff. You know, on the women's side at, at Capri Piana, we there was three coaches. You had the head coach. Uh, and two assistants. That's that's kind of that's quite a lot. Some schools have a lot less than that. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's not like you got eight, nine, ten different coaches. Yeah. Um, and you know, even when we're very fortunate, we get to use a lot of um, software and analytics, analytics for our for our program. But that's us who has to do it. So with the GPS tracker units or the uh, the film editing and, and all this stuff, we don't have one person hired just to do that for us. Mm-hmm. It's all part of what we have to do. Um, but like I say, we're—I still think we're very fortunate compared to, to a lot of schools. We do have a strength and conditioning coach that works with all the programs. Uh, we one do of the have, best, huh? one of the best. Yeah, shout out to Chase, one of the best out there. Um, we do have a, a great staff in the um, on the medical side. You know, our head mm-hmm. trainer and and that department does a great job. Uh, and again, they're all everyone is spread thin, but everyone kind of rallies together. Um, I think it'd be—I think when you look at what what the school can provide um for the amount of people it has it is phenomenal it's unbelievable what they can do but I, it's a lot of hours uh, you know and we when i was balancing college high school and club um that they're long days they're long long days and and ultimately it was when i actually got the opportunity to be a full-time employee of the college so originally i was just helping out kind of volunteering or doing camps or being there when i could be there when it was the opportunity to become a full-time member of the staff that's when I had to give up the high school because it just wasn't possible mm-hmm. to balance them all. Um, and then even now with club, you know, there'd be days when we train early in the morning to so make sure the kids don't have to miss class. We'd be training you know, in the office. We'd meet there at six We'd be, uh, out in the field by 6:45. 45, up, train at 7. AM. And then after the, the full day at college, my, uh, my club teams, I was training till 9 PM at night. So I'd be out the house from about five, 45 uh, i'd leave the house and i would be getting home about 9 30 10 o'clock at night and that's uh, it's a pretty long day and you're doing that four or five I, days a week it, it takes its toll
0: kind of want to real quick but i mean any young coaches out there any coaches at all that say i want to be involved in the college game just be prepared because i mean that's a typical story right um until you kind of grind and make it to the UCLA's, uh, the the Portland's, uh, um, Gonzaga's, all these top schools. And obviously they put in the work, but it's, it's long, long days, you know, um, and it's dedication, you know, it's something that obviously Dan is passionate about. And obviously, if you weren't passionate about it, you wouldn't be putting in those those long hours. But um, it's just interesting to kind of see behind, you know. What everyone just assumes is is an awesome laid back gig, gig, right? Like, oh, you just coach at the college game, relax. Everyone's gonna come to you. Um, obviously, now you're coaching in uh, the DA or the GA. Um, you know, you have the elite of the elite, but you gotta put in the work no matter what level you're at. And I think the higher the level you go, the more work you actually end up putting in. Um, so it's just kind of interesting and <laughs> kind of funny, right? Then we we went into the college game ready a coach and we learned how to manage budgets uh you know book airfare airfare we can be travel agents now um i had to manage uh (laughs) you know uh, food for way trips so calling all the restaurants one benefit from that was i did rack up a lot of reward points because of it because it was all on my on myself but (laughs) it definitely is a grind um behind the college game and it's, it's it's good to be able to see like that you were able to balance it um i'm sure it was hard at you know times you know especially the lots of lots of coffee and energy drinks probably but um kind of what is the cuz obviously GA and DA is a high level for obviously we we're saying GA now cuz that's what they're a part of right the girls academy um what is kind of the biggest difference of level of play between a U19 team and a college level team
1: I think it's it's definitely it is it's different in some ways now, obviously a lot of aspects are the same but I think one of the things you saw when it was the D.A. in particular, um, just a different requirement on the body of the player. So in the D.A. was very big on you would do four training sessions during the week, one game at the weekend, and it was stretched out over a long period of time. It was like a 10-month season. And obviously, again, on the goal side, the D.A. was only around for, for three, three, four seasons. Um, whereas in college, it's such a condensed season, and you may be playing a game on a Friday and a Sunday, uh, and you're only your season's only going to be a few months long. So... The wear and tear on the body um, is is extreme in, in the college game. Um, and it's also even things like the subbing rules were different. So the way you would sub in college with players being able to re-enter in the second half in the DA, you couldn't do that. So players were able to play for sustained minutes continually in DA. It was about managing games and tempo being different. college, there will be some teams you play and they can have a line change of players and they just keep going and going. Uh, rosters obviously at college are bigger as well in general
0: which system do you think is better for the you know full development of the player you know because even in the college game a lot of those players especially on the women's side a lot of those players go out of college and still go to the professional ranks right i think it's more of a pathway on the women's side than it is on the men's side um there's a lot of factors that go into it but which system do you think is better kind of like that free line change or more of the you know limited subs
1: i think if you're talking about for to develop for a professional game as players get older and, and again this isn't talking about U10s or U9s or anything like that but older players uh, from like U16 up I think if you're talking about developing players to understand a game and manage a game obviously having it more like the subbing in a professional game would make more sense so the DA that was its kind of mission it was aim was to increase the level of professional play or national team play and so in those in those games the subbing rules are more restrictive Um Now, I think you can learn things in the college game from their southern rules in a sense of, well, you're going to have to, when you are on it, it's 100 miles now and you're getting banged around and it's kind of, you have to deal with that tempo. Um, And, you know, and again, not every school is the same. There'll be some that have a different style, uh, maybe it's more successful than another. And I think, again, women's and men's game maybe is different from school to school, area to area. I think you look at parts of the country, even if it's a d1 school in texas and a d1 school in california or a D one school in you know oklahoma there's different styles of play still for that particular conference that they play in um so i don't think any one way is the best way but i think if you just look in a logical sense if your aim is to play pro then as you get to learn more how to manage a game like a pro player the some rules that are more linked to that would be probably more more successful what about on a um,
0: coach's perspective you know if your aim is to make it to the professional ranks make it to the first team what system would you recommend for them to be and i guess to grow more um, as a professional coach trying to make it to the professional ranks
1: i think it's it's actually good to do both i mean that that teaches you a lot um i i did really like the fact that the rules were quite strict in da just because as a coach is you had to try and find solutions with what you had available to you at that time on the field. Could you, were your players prepared properly to make changes themselves in a the game? I think one of the big things we talk about with players is, you know, game knowledge, game understanding, soccer IQ, you know, all these things. Well, if they're in a game and you're not able to make a million subs and you're not able to kind of keep on having your impact as a coach right there and then, it's more about the impact you can have with them on the training field and in the preparation or in the analysis of a game. So I think that's great if you want to go into professional ranks of coaching. I really think that will help you have to hone that. At the same time, in the college game, you can have a really big impact very quickly as a coach because you can make those changes. You can bring players out and then you know talk to them and then put them back in later on in the game and then they maybe you know got that chance to reevaluate what's happening in that particular match against a certain matchup or opponent and things mm-hmm. like that. So having the chance to do both, um and again, you look at the games uh, in the rest of Europe. Coaches who work with youth players, they're not going to be restricted to, oh, you're only allowed three subs. You know, it's it's just at the highest and the older levels that would happen anywhere in the world. So it's not that different. Um, but I think experiencing both, there's definitely stuff you can take away from it. And again, we're all trying to learn still. So you don't want to be so close so Well, that's that's ridiculous. I would never do that and never even try it. Um, and again, if you work in certain clubs, it's different. And you may have different some rules in the based on the league you're you're actually on. Uh, if you're in high school, the rules are different again. Mm-hmm. So you know, in all these different aspects, you have to really think as a coach. Okay, how can you get your point across to your players, and how can you influence the game in a positive way, but still empower your players to make decisions? And I think they all just bring different different aspects to that.
0: Yeah, Um, one like big point that I kind of want to ask you is obviously. At Pat's, you have the role of a head coach, and at the high school, you were a head coach, and at Cal Poly Pomona, you're an assistant coach, and I, I've I've done both as well, and I'm pretty sure a lot of coaches kind of struggle, I guess, um, you know, kind of sw- flipping the switch and going to an assistant role because obviously it's a little bit more reserved. You're you know, there's one voice at practice, one voice during the games. So what's kind of the biggest difference and what tips and advice can you give to coaches that are kind of struggling as an as- being an assistant coach and kind of being more um, quiet, I guess, rather than, you know, when they're head coach?
1: Yeah, I think the first thing is, is outline from the start, what is your role as the assistant? Or, or if you are the head coach, what do you want your assistants to do? Um, we, we very much do it where we do want one voice. So we don't want to be all the coaches up on the sidelines screaming and shouting and there's different, you know, misinformation or contradictory information. So We have a very clear thing of, at the start, we made a decision as a staff that the head coach is the main voice and that's what we want to use. So if there's anything we want to discuss as staff, we can disagree, we can argue, whatever it might be. But ultimately, there is the final decision and the final voice comes from that head coach. So it's very clear for the players. Um, And sometimes, you know, it's going to be where you may have an opinion and I may think not, I I don't agree, but ultimately, I don't have the final say and, and you should never be and assistant who's gonna contradict or or disagree with the head coach in front of the players. Um, I think mean, that's about checking your ego and, and making sure you know you're recognizing why am I here, what am I trying to do and, and what are we trying to do as a whole staff? Just like when with my high school program, when I was the head coach of that program and I had staff who worked underneath me and, and I was lucky enough at the high school I had, I actually had multiple staff working for me. It wasn't like just one assistant. It was like, we had a goalkeeper coach an assistant coach and you had your JV coach and another assistant coach. It was like, we had actually quite a good staff. Yeah. Um, and it's about, the same thing, outline those those roles and have a clear vision of what we want and still give everyone the input, be willing to, to kind of put your ego to the side and even if I'm the head coach, I'm still going to take input from someone else that I respect or that I've hired. Um, but then they also recognize it's, you know, it's the final decision will be mine um but they've got to trust that I will I value their their um their that kind of information they're going to give me and the input they have so I think as long as there's clear roles it can be it can be done but I do think there's always got to be that point where you you know you're willing to you know give your point of view and feel comfortable and know you're allowed to give your point of view but then also recognize that there's a time and a place for it uh, and you'll make sure that everyone's on the same page through, throughout the stuff
0: mhm And when you're as a head coach, when you're building your staff, what exactly are you looking for? Are you looking for like minded coaches? For example, if you're playing, you know, college game, you play the long bar, you play uh, positional play. Are you looking for coaches that are kind of of that same mindset? or Are you looking for coaches that maybe uh, a part of your game is uh, or weakness of your game, maybe coaching, you know, the defending unit? Um, So are you looking for a coach that can come in and kind of help? with that, you know, your weaknesses or are you looking for more like-minded coaches?
1: I think you want to have coaches that are gonna make the program better, which means they're probably gonna have to have a different strength to you. You No, it's it's like a it's like a team. If if all your players were the exact same player, uh, you're probably maybe going to be really good in some aspects but weaker in others. And I think it's the same with staff. So, you know, we had coaches from maybe slightly different backgrounds, but they would see that maybe certain things or maybe they were a bit more of a specialist in one area. But ultimately, the overview of the program and the philosophy of the, the program had to align. So I don't think you could say we're going to have this coach really believes in, you know, teaching by um, uh, by kind of giving the players opportunities to learn through their play. And this one over here is I like, know everything I do is I'm going to tell them everything. on joystick. a joystick. I think if, it's, if they're too far apart with their views and it doesn't align with each other, then it wouldn't work. But at the same time, I don't just want a coach who's a yes man who's, or you know just going to be there and say, yeah, whatever you say is great. That's 100% brilliant. My, whatever I came up with must be amazing because everyone always agrees with me. That's not going to push you to be better either. So I think it's that balance of finding what people are good at, um, making sure you use their strengths and make sure that helps you develop your program, but also make sure that the people you hire have a similar common value or, or common philosophy that you can work together with and, and keep pushing forward. I, I definitely don't think having just everyone be the exact same, it is gonna work. And that's also with personality. I don't think you can have if everyone's always the bad guy, probably not gonna go well with your team. But at the same time, everyone's oh the world's amazing, it's all rainbows and butterflies and and never is gonna have uh, is getting get have a go or get on top of someone, that doesn't work either. So you need that balance between between stuff.
0: And I think it's important like for a head coach to be able to really evaluate their their coaching tools, right? And understand it, it's kind of putting the ego aside and saying, All right, what am I weak at? And I have to kind of open up and trust the staff. And which is why I always argue that, you know, a lot of people always say, oh, um, all it is is networking, right? It'll get you the job. And we, we speak about this a lot is who, you know, gets you the job, what, you know, keeps you there. It's just an unfortunate thing. I mean, it's the way it is, but it's because there's so much, especially in soccer, so many coaches that are willing to, you know, climb over, You know, or push some throw somebody under the bus to get to the next level. So coaches are very, very worried about who they bring in on their staff. Right. They want to be make sure that they have an assistant coach where and we've all dealt with it as assistant coach. A player will come up and talk to us and say, I just don't like the head coach. He does this and this and this. I like you. You should be the head coach. And we have to be very, you know, careful of what we say, because we're there to support the head coach's vision right? And so it can be easy to go, oh, yeah, yeah, go talk to the AD, you know? Um, and w- <laughs> But you want to make sure you have an assistant coach that is trustworthy, that says, hey, I know you don't understand what he's doing, but, you know, X, Y, and Z, this is why he's doing it. I, I also agree with, you know, the plan of why the head coach is doing this, and um, let's talk about it some more, and, you know, help you understand, right? So I think having that kind of trustworthy um, network, is is the reason why you know you typically see people get hired, you know that they've worked together in the past. So again, kind of hitting on the topic of networking, it is crucial. Um, are you, you know, in your next big head coaching gig, are you going to look to be like the NFL and get a, a pullback coach, you know, to make sure you're not wandering on the field?
1: <laughs> no, I'll be, I'll just be the one sitting there, nice and relaxed on the sideline. I'll let someone else do the, <laughs> the running up and down. But no, I, I think you're right though. It's it's definitely. It's, it's a it's a delicate thing with, with coaching staffs and and, uh, and assistants. And like I said, players, if you're never the bad guy, and a lot of times the assistant coach isn't the bad guy because they're not the one who makes the final decision. We don't pick the team. So when you're the assistant, you may get a player saying, oh, I, I don't quite understand why I'm not getting this opportunity or why is that player getting that? But again, if you are the, doing what's best for the programme and you've had that good relationship with the head coach, um you're going to back them um, and always back them publicly. And then if there's something that you disagree, you're going to talk that in private and discuss it and, and find a, a way to, you know, to come to, you know, the best solution for the team. But even when I think, I think if you hire good people, then, you know, they're going to work hard for you. And I think if you're the assistant, if you're being hired by a good person, you're going to work hard for them. And, and I said, it's I've been very fortunate The when I was running the high school program, the, the people I had work for me um, were great. I trusted them and they were people I, I knew that if push came to shove, they'd, they'd back me and they'd tell me they were never like there trying to you know, take my job or trying to step over me or trying to you know, play uh, the players or parents against me. And and that's why I was there for so long with the same staff. I was fortunate to have um, staff stay with me. Uh, and at the same time, now as the assistant uh, at Pomona, it's I trust the head coach has got the best interest for the players and, and for me as a, as a coach and wants to help me get better. So I know that they're there on my side and I'm going to make sure I do everything for them as well to make sure they, they have the success they want. So that mutual respect and, and hiring the right people, um, I think is only what makes it a successful program.
0: Yeah. Taking a page out of the All Blacks, you know, for those of you guys that don't know, the All Blacks is the most successful sports team, you know, of all sports, right? They're the New Zealand rugby team. Um, good people make better All Blacks, right? So good people are going to make your, better, uh, your program better. Um, and I kind of want to reiterate of course networking is important but i also think of course as head coaches take a chance on you know a coach that may not have their experience you know on paper you know have have a coffee with him chat with him and then you may actually see that hey they may not have the experience on paper but they know what they're talking about they seem like you know check their references see if they're a good person but i think we also as head coaches is once we get to that level we have to be able to open the door for other coaches right um so you know keep your your trustworthy network but also give other coaches an opportunity you know um i'm pretty sure you know coaches that have given you an opportunity like that i i have plenty of coaches that have given me opportunity to step in and i'm I'm super grateful so i hope you know in the future when i'm at the my next stop um that you know if there's a younger coach give them the opportunity you know
1: yeah and it's i think on the other end it's it's young coaches you gotta be willing to to put yourself out there and also be willing to Put the work in and grind. Yeah. You know you get if you go out and put and you know you get given opportunity. Make the most of it. And I I remember you know, there's coaches who they just assume. Oh, I've coached one year. I've got my first coaching license. Oh, suddenly I should be given a top team. and I should be you know given all the best players or I should be the head coach of a program. It's it doesn't doesn't work that way. You got to you got to put your hours in and pay your dues and and show that you have value and, and do it consistently. One year of hard work isn't going to suddenly mean that you get everything given to you it's mm-hmm. going to be your your kind of your body of work um and I think that's that sometimes is unfortunately gets lost now because there is so many so many different uh avenues mm-hmm. for coaches to take there's always seems be like, oh the grass is green over there I can jump from this position to that position or this school to that school this club to that club um and it only takes you know a couple of parents in the uk to buy into you and your ego gets big mm-hmm. and you're like okay I'm gonna move and take my whole team with me um, but that's no way to, to build a reputation or to, or to hone your craft. So I think it's yeah, as a if you're a coach, you have the opportunity to hire people, give people a chance, and if you're the someone, you're the person who is starting out and wants to be hired. Make sure you're, you're putting everything you can in and put your best foot forward to, to put the effort in and, and keep working.
0: I think two coaches that kind of come to mind about putting in the work as an assistant coach is uh, Yossi Ross, obviously at UCI. And then his, his his former assistant, uh, Matt O'Sullivan, who I got to work with at Cal Poly Pomona, I think Matt was an assistant coach at a few different institutions for over 15 years before he took a, his first head coaching uh, gig. And I'm pretty sure there was moments along his coaching journey that he kind of wanted to, you know, give up or say, hey, when's my next turn? When's my next turn, you know? and. I'm pretty sure he had gotten a few opportunities, but wins the right one. And obviously now he's landed uh, one of the most powerful D2s uh, in the nation, you know, and especially here in California. And uh, uh, it was going his second year, obviously, with COVID and everything. But I know he's in his first year, they were able to win the CEC, uh, AA, uh conference tournament. Um, so it's good accomplishment. And uh, I know he's got a special program brewing there. Um, but kind of moving on from the whole college game, it still plays a factor into it, but many coaches hear this a lot, you know, your coaching philosophy, your game model. So what exactly is your game model and your coaching philosophy? Um, If you can kind of just briefly describe what are they um, in general and then describe yours and how exactly it ties into, you know, your whole planning your week for your team.
1: Yeah, I mean, when you you talk about the difference between the philosophy or, or your game model, I think for your coaching philosophy, that's much more about a simple question of, you know, who, you, who are you and why do you do it? And um, I mean, that's what should build your coaching philosophy. So, you know, everyone's a bit different. Um, but if you're coaching for a soccer program somewhere and, and this is, you know, the job you have or the career path you want to take, or maybe it's not your main career. Maybe you do it as a, a side thing and maybe you're a parent coach, whatever it might be, but your philosophy and coaching, it should be about who are you as a person and, and why are you doing it? And that should form the basis. Um, so, you know, for me, I do this as a career, um, but my coaching philosophy is more driven in what I had as a as a player when I grew up, loving the sport and wanting to help players get better. It's so I want to see players improve. I want to see them enjoy it. But also I am a competitive person, so part of my my philosophy is I want to build a culture where players know there is success and there is, you know, there is some failure because that's life. And I think you've got to build it into it and i think your philosophy also will continually evolve i don't think your coaching philosophy from 20 years ago is going to be the same or the exact same you know 20 years later i think it may be that's parts of it because there may be fundamental things of a person that you believe in uh, and that will always kind of stay throughout but as you get more experience, you mature i think there's going to be little uh, adaptions you make as you go along but then when you look at a game model that's going to be more more along like okay all the aspects of either building a program or coaching a team or running, you know, uh, being a DOC of a club or whatever, and you, and you start talking about, well, okay, how do you build a program? How is this game model going to evolve and how are you going to instill it over a bigger a bigger group of people? Um, and so that may be more things about, yeah, who, who are we as a program or who are we as a club or who are we as a, as a school? Um, how do we want to play? You know, why do we want to play that way? Um, how are we then going to, if that's how we want to play, how are we going to, Get our point across how we're we going to teach it, how are we going to select the right players to fit in this, this, this system or the right type of people to bring in? Um, I think, mean, how are you going to then plan your, your week ahead? How are you going to periodize your, your training and, and your season and all these things? So, I think it, they are they, they go hand in hand because ultimately, all those things for that game model is still going to stem back to well, what are you like as a person? Why, why are you doing this? What is your philosophy? Um, and then that will help guide you through building a game model um, and, and helping build a uh, kind of whole curriculums and, and kind of the bigger picture of, of what you want to see from a team or a program or a club uh, or an organization. Um, but I think both of them fundamentally come back to people. Um, if you're building a team, you know, and you have a certain philosophy of how you want to game play, well, you've got to bring the right people in, but they've also got to be not as right soccer people, but do they buy into what you're trying to get out of this, what you're trying to teach. Um, and it, it's, it's hard because I think in especially where, where we're based in, in Southern California, it's a cutthroat world in, in some of it. And, and what we do with our, uh, what you have to deal with on, on the club side and with the, the parents and the amount of money involved in it, um, there's going to be times where you may not agree with something and that may cost you in a result sense or with players or recruiting or something like that. But again, if you as a as a person feel like that's not what I want to be or what I want to do, then you know, that that's on you to make that choice. Um and for me, ultimate, or um in the end, the uh, the number one thing is when something happens, at the end of the day are you gonna better go to sleep at, at night and you're gonna be happy with what you've done. And as long as you can, then then that's good for you. And there may be things that another coach does that I don't agree with, but they don't have a problem with it. That's fine. That's their their kind of uh philosophy of their concepts their ideas and there may be things that i've done and other people like well i wouldn't have done that i don't feel comfortable doing that and that's fine as well i think as long as you can be true to yourself uh, that's how you're going to build a successful culture and and philosophy for your own coaching style um so when it comes to the game model a little bit more science behind that i guess it's not it's it's more about the uh the different aspects of the game and how you're going to build through that
0: so to kind of wrap it up the game models is more like the system you know the tactics kind of behind it what what you want to do in um, certain phases the fourth moment of the game right and the coaching philosophy is more like how are we going to manage the person behind the player right Um, just kind of is that basically what you were kind of getting to
1: yeah kind of I think for me the game model is more than just that Um, I think the game model is is all the aspects of it. it. It could be the recruiting process. It could be the, you know, people love to use things like holistic approach now. And there's all <laughs> these buzzwords that go on. It's like, it's great. I mean, ultimately, it's when I'm doing a, the philosophy is more about, yeah, the the person and you as a person. I mean, that's that's the philosophy. is your own coaching philosophy, your identity as a person and, and how you want to come across, how you want to be seen. The game model, I, I would say, is a lot more, it's all the other aspects. But all those other aspects are impacted by your philosophy and by you mm-hmm. as a person. Um, now, when you do your game, although it may be a collaborative approach as well. So it may be as a club. So let's say you're a DOC at a club and you're going to talk, OK, well, we want to play a certain style of soccer. We want all our teams to develop this style. And where they're from U8 to U19, it's going to be we want to build and everything's like a, a stepping stone to the next level and we want to move up through it. And you build that and that's how you build, you have to build your curriculum into it. You have to build your recruiting process into it. You have to build um, kind of how you develop the player as, as a whole. Maybe there is aspects of this holistic approach and it's like, okay, how do we make sure we do give them more insight on the nutrition part or how they study better, how they balance their schedules, how they're mature enough to have conversations with their coaches if something's not going well, how they can have that open dialogue. Um, and I think that's all the bigger picture stuff. Um, And I think that's all part of the game model. And I think when you talk about then the tactics um, and formations, or you're talking about periodization of training and what we're going to work on certain days or high load days, low load days, all this stuff, I think that's all part of the game model. Um, and, And again, it will change, you know, depending on which organization you work for or which school, which college, whatever. There may be different philosophies and different game styles and different teaching styles they want to use. And again, does it align with what you believe as an individual? If it does, great, it could be a good fit. Do you maybe you're gonna go into it trying to help change it? Maybe you, you're being brought in because you do have a slightly different opinion and they they've hired you because you can maybe impact it or improve it. Um, but if it's saying that is completely left field and completely different with what you you believe in fundamentally as a person and how things are done and how they treat people, um, or if it's just fundamentally completely different how you think the game should be played or taught then maybe that's not going to be the best fit for you. So I, I think it's there's so many great, you can get a million PowerPoint presentations, you can see people come up with these great pictures and slides and diagrams about all this stuff. But for me, fundamentally, it's going to be on the, on the philosophy, why you're doing it, who are you as a person, what do you want people to, uh, to think of you, and the game model is how this is my point of view, how I want the game played. Here are all the steps I'm going to take to get me to this point and all different aspects of the sport I have to take into account.
0: it's funny you mentioned a few things that i i I wanted to butt in and kind of let you uh you know tell it but i let you finish um there's a few things it's kind of how you said all these presentations right i kind of feel that we're getting a little too too scientifical too tech tech you know tech savvy um when we're giving these presentations because i think the same uh idea behind it and the concepts can be given but I think we add all these graphics and all these things just to make us look better as a present uh, you know as a presenter um, make us look smarter but it's like we're breaking down stuff where it's like you didn't need to break it down um in that sense right you've become over analytical and you know and even in all sports right we're going so heavy depending on technology that it's kind of taking away the gut feeling from coaching um, but that's kind of a whole another topic um, so, kind of when you're developing the game model, as long as you include the words, you're good, right? So, if I include a academy and development, <laughs> I'm, I, I got the best game model ever, right?
1: I, and then just put a badge on your jersey, everyone's <laughs> happy. Yeah, that's, that's how it is. I mean, it's, yeah, it's it, it, it's it's sad, but it, it, it's it's what it's what's happened to the industry. It's funny. The, I mean, i it's when you speak to coaches out here, it's like when you talk about the accent. And so it means you sound smarter because you got an accent. So mm-hmm. you must. You must be talking about. Trust me the... The coaches who get most annoyed by a bad English coach, they are the English coaches because <laughs> he gives us a bad name. So somebody comes out and because they got an accent thinks, oh, I can just turn up and say say whatever I want and it, it must be right because I've got an accent and they're a, they're a disaster and they're, they're not treating kids the right way or coaching the right way. That offends an English coach more than anything because I've, I have gone through the system and done all my life and sin and I want to get better and I've surrounded myself with good people that I can learn from. Uh, and I, I want to improve and keep on improving. So I think it's the same with these all these presentations. Yeah, they look great and it, it may be impressive. And someone who, you know, maybe doesn't know much about the sport, but you know they're in an industry where oh, it's all glitz and glamour flashy, yeah. and flashy, good presentations. They may fall for that. But ultimately, if you know, as a parent, if I if I'm going to my my kid play a sport for a certain or a certain club. Yeah I, I, yeah, I just want to be professional. I get it. This is, a you know, people pay money. They expect professionalism in the presentation front. I get it. But is what they're presenting, one, is it actually appropriate? And two, is it even followed through on? Mm-hmm. You know, someone can put together a great session plan or a great presentation about how they're going to develop this this child and, and how they're going to hit all these different points. And, you know, this is our aim. This is our end vision. But then do they actually put that into practice on training day and mm-hmm. on game day? Is there a coach who says... We want to play one way, uh, but then does some completely different at training. Or, oh, at training, yeah. There's we let them do um, do this, but then come game day, they're a completely different person. I think it's it's, it's very full for that trap.
0: Yeah, uh, I had a buddy that I, well, I I coached him in the U P S L, and he played um, over in England in League One, League Two football, right? And he'd always tell me, we don't play football there, right? We just boot the ball up. But he said he had a manager that he would come out on the touchline be like, pass, 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 you know, good, good, good. And then he would sit in the dugout when nobody could see and just say, boot the ball up, get it up the field. (laughs) Um, That's kind of what it is if you come out with all this presentation but don't follow through on it. And it kind of has two follow-up questions is, at what age should game models or should coaches introduce game models to their team? Um, Because obviously – You don't want the five-year-old trying to learn positional play when he doesn't even know how to pass the ball, right? Um, Or he doesn't even know the the basics of the game, you know, out of bounds, you know, offside. um, Simple, simple things. Um, So at what age do you think it's a good idea to introduce it? And then if you were a director, and I know you've you've been a head coach. So, you know, we spoke about this in the past. There's Jose Mourinho's, there's Pep If If they were in the same club... And they had the game model of positional play. Guardiola would look amazing and buy in. But Jose Mourinho, maybe, you know, maybe he says, hey, I don't want to coach that way. And I'm talking about U19 level, right? A little bit higher. Um, what about this way? They're going to tell him no. And maybe he doesn't become a successful coach or vice versa. Pep Guardiola wants to play, you know, positional play and they don't want to allow him. So how much do you give some freedom to the coaches? And how much do you actually say no? This is the way we're playing. So, at what age do we introduce the game model, and then how much freedom do you give coaches in a overall program um, kind of curriculum?
1: Yeah, I, th- I think it's it, that will be based. I mean, from program to program, be a bit different. I think yeah, at younger ages. The main thing is you got to look at well, what are children gonna want to do? What are they like? So, a five-year-old it's all going to be about they want to have the ball. They want to be there. They don't recognize strong players, weak players. They just want to be out there having fun. So your activity should be based around that, having them have as much as many experiences as possible and having fun and success. I think as you get older, yeah, you, you want to start thinking about, okay, tactics or formations. Yeah, maybe as you get into those 11 aside and you and know, older age groups, um, I think it's a bit different in America as well where, Kids don't watch the game as much. So if you said to a eight, nine, ten year old in England, in Spain, in Germany, uh, okay, uh, what formation would you play if you played eleven v eleven? Mm-hmm. Well, they'd probably know because they watched, you know, would they watch Bayern Munich or Barcelona or Tottenham or whatever it is? Um, I think if you ask an American child who doesn't play eleven v eleven yet, so maybe they are a U eight, U nine, U ten, whatever it is, they're not playing eleven v eleven yet. And you said, OK, if there was 11 players on the field, you know, what might be a formation? What could be a potential formation? They'd come up with some crazy great ideas, but I don't mean it'd be very realistic to the sport, with some of them, because they just don't see it. Um, so as a young kid growing up, I would be maybe more aware of, oh, yeah, this team played. That's when I grew up. everyone played a four-four-two. So it was like, OK, you knew that. Even if I wasn't playing 11 v 11, I still knew. A team would maybe have, you know, the big forward and the little forward and they'd have, you know, the big center back and they'd have this, you know, this certain style of formation. I don't think you have that here the same way. Um, so for me, I think, yeah, the young, young kids, is, is can they get that individual uh, time and exposure on the ball? Can they spend time working on that, worrying about those things, worrying about enjoying it and having success? But I think as they get older and they need to start to understand concepts, um that's when you want to start introducing, you know, those next aspects of the sport, and then then you can talk about, you know, introducing the physical side of it. Well, I don't think you need to have 10 year old kids doing, you know, 101 SAQ sessions. Um, but at the same time, when I grew up as a kid, you did, you ran around and you you improved your individual athleticism just by being a kid, mm-hmm. and you are like playing with your friends in the street or climbing up trees or running around or being outside here it feels like everything is, they're trying to be so specialized all the way at the younger mm-hmm. ages. And then suddenly they get to high school. Oh, now I'm going to play everything. Whereas the rest of the world it's the other way around. It's like as a kid, yeah, maybe soccer was my main sport that I loved to play. And that's when I watched, but at school, my PE classes, we played every sport, but mm-hmm. this is when we were seven, eight, nine, 10, 11 years old. That's when we play multiple sports with your friends. Um, even though soccer was the main sport you played, you still played everything else. And then once you got older, you specialize and the kids that, I was lucky enough to actually play with and go to school with, who then made it and went on and played pro and played in the Premier League. They were then once they hit, you know, 14, 15, yeah, this is all they were doing. Here, it seems a very weird, backward system because in America, I speak to parents like, "Yeah, I've got my kid doing uh, the team training sessions, and they've got a private trainer, and then he's got a speed coach, and they're going to focus just on this from U8 to U, you know, to U14." But then suddenly they get to the high schools Now, well, now they want to play three different sports at the same time because, well, you know, they want to try it out. Well, why didn't they try this out when they were younger? Why didn't they have fun playing these different sports with their friends at a young age and then specialize once they get a bit older? Um, and you, to be a well-rounded athlete, you can't just do one thing. Um, and I think it's it's definitely a, a struggle continue because people want, you know, they've got the kid and they think they're going to be this next superstar, they're the next master on the women's side or they're next you know, messy on the men's side and it's like yeah but let them be a kid and have fun let them try different things and, and to be a good athlete just doing you know training with a strength coach when you're 10 years old that's not the answer maybe having them play multiple sports at a young age and trying things out and having fun being creative with their friends will make them a better better um all-round or well-rounded athlete so that when they are old and they want to specialize they have the ability to do so. And I know that was always a big argument when it came to like, the DA not allowing high school sport. Well, if those kids have played all their sports when they're younger, they're going to be a good athlete. I understand, though, if the kid has only played soccer and nothing else, and then they still don't do more sport when they get to um, an older age yeah, they're going to have some deficiencies in their athleticism. And that's why some of the top academies in the world, like at Ajax in Holland, they have a day where the kids play sport, but it ain't soccer. You know, yeah. They may be playing a different sport, basketball or whatever it is, because they see the value that you can still have transferable skills, you can still improve athleticism, you can still build team camaraderie and and still work on on different aspects that will help them with their soccer by using a different sport as the vehicle for it. Mm
0: -hmm. I mean, just like as coaches, right, we can watch other sports and learn um, exactly what to do in soccer. I know Pep Guardiola brought up the All Blacks earlier, but Pep Watch is a big fan of basketball, he's a big fan of the All Blacks, Mm -hmm. and so a lot of what they learn from there applies. I mean, England, um, their corner routine right, comes from basketball inbounding. Um so it's definitely you know watching another sport you can kind of get the ideas um so kind of following up i know we go off on random tangents and it's good 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 um we've been talking for a while so following up again as a club DLC how much would you force a coach into a specific game model
1: uh for me i would i'd want the coach to be true to himself and creative but if I brought them into the club, there would be certain things that would align with my thoughts. So I, I think it's if you've got the right staff, um, when you've had your staff meetings and discussions through the hiring process, they're going to have certain philosophies that align with you anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, but I wouldn't. I, I don't believe in saying every team must play the same formation. I think teams are different, um, and I think you can have a style of play that can be similar even if the formation is different. You know, you can be a possession-based team playing 43. You could be a direct team playing 43. You could be a possession-based team playing a 352. You could be direct playing 352. So I think there's going to be this, the style of play is much more important to me than the formation played. I think mean, the formation is just in any given game, personnel you have, areas of the field you want to exploit, matchups you want to exploit. That's where the formation comes into. The style of play is more or something that I would want, I'd hope that would be instilled in the club. Um, so if you want to be a high pressing team, yes, I think if you, if you want all your teams to, to have that mindset, and philosophy, I think that that can work. Um, and I think if you want to be a team that is, is, you know, defense first, whatever that, whatever you want to do, I think, yeah, the style can be, can be throughout a program, but I don't think I would ever say you must play this formation or you must have this type of player in this formation at all times I think you'll be more flexible in that because that's how you're going to evolve. And, and that's how coaches are going to find themselves and they can help develop their own, their own styles or their own uh, way of playing. And I think mean, that can then actually make a program better and stronger. Cause there's more, more philosophies and ideas being brought together.
0: Yeah. There's no one way to play the beautiful game, right? I think no. that's what makes it great.
1: But- hey, if there was only one way that everyone would play. It'd be very boring. So uh, right? always, uh, it's always it's a, it's a battle. It's, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a chess match. You got to find uh, what works for you and what works for the players you have. And, and ultimately, it's what you want to work on. Have you got your point across? You know, it's one thing me be saying, I want to play this way. and But if I can't get my point across to the players and they don't understand what I want, then then I've failed as a coach. Mm-hmm. Um, if I want to play it a way that someone else doesn't agree with, but, hey, my players do it perfectly every time and that's why they're successful, then at least I know that the way I've teached it and the way I've, I've, I've kind of got my, my view to the players, they've bought into it and they understand it. And ultimately, mm-hmm. as an educator, our aim is, can you get your information, your knowledge on, you know, instilled in the people that you're meant to be teaching. Um, But I don't mean, yeah, I think people now they want to have this, this wonderful idea of everyone must play this certain way and and all that. And I just think you've you've got to be be honest and real and think about. that. There's not only one way to do it Mm -hmm. and that's okay. There's nothing wrong with that.
0: I think you summed it up perfectly when you said we're an educator. I think a lot of times people forget that coaches were just, we're like teachers, you know, just our subject happens to be soccer, not history or another subject, right? And I think coaches get overwhelmed with like, let me talk a lot during practice to show everybody how much I know, to show the DLC that's walking by, to show the coach that's over there. I know this topic, but we forget. doesn't matter how much we know as coaches. If the players don't understand it, if we can't teach it to them, then we ultimately failed, like you said, right? It doesn't matter how much we know, can we get the players to understand it and buy in? And I think that's what yeah. makes an elite coach.
1: That's Well if you got the, the coaches that the best coaches, they could not coach their team for a game and the team still play mm-hmm. the same way. Mm-hmm. You look at the teams where when they're coaching there they fall apart. And they're like, Well, if our head coach was here, you know, we would have won this game because they would have had you should, especially when you get older, you should know how to make decisions for yourself and how to play and how to, you know, it should be instilled in the team and all the players. Um, and again, but again, in philosophies, you know, I, I want my players to understand what we're trying to do and why we're trying to do it. Some coaches may be like, nope, this is what I want you to do. I'm not mm-hmm. going to tell you why. Just do it, get on with it. And if that's their philosophy and that's what I'm going to go with, maybe that works for them. It's just not what I particularly agree with. Um, and I think for players long term, if, they are, if, if they're going to be successful, they need to be able to understand what they're doing and why they're doing it. If you don't understand why, then it, you're going to completely forget it, when, it you know, when you move on. If you understand the reasons, you'll take the pros and cons and learn from it. And that's when you're going to become a more well-rounded player. And same with a coach. If you're going to become a more well-rounded coach, you need to maybe understand why certain people do certain things. Whether you, you, you like it or not, or whether you agree with it or not, or whether you would do it the same way, you can still take piece of information from what they're doing and understand, okay, I can see this is why they're doing it. this is why they were successful, and here's you know maybe how I can counter it uh, or how I can take aspects of it and bring it into my my model but um but yeah, for me you know, the players have to have to understand why why they do things, and, and the only way they're going to do that is if the coach can get the information across them in a
0: in a relevant
1: and a, and a kind of a, a good manner in a way that it kind of spikes the interest of the players.
0: Yeah, yeah. Man, we've covered a lot, a lot of different topics. I hope all the listeners enjoyed it. Um, It was great. It was great. I, I I, don't say this lightly. And we've gone into depth on, you know, a wide range of topics from game models to the college game to the DA um, philosophies, you know, so I think it's good. Um, This is exactly what we want to bring to the listeners is a little bit of everything. And then if they would like, you know, to reach out to dan um i know you know we can include all um different uh, social medias or email in the in the description but thank you dan i appreciate your time i appreciate you you know just being an open book and give us your 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 thoughts your philosophies everything that you've done throughout the years and how it's shaped you as a coach so thank you and uh is there anything else you you kind of want to say before we go
1: no just you know thanks otty for having me and yeah any uh any other times, I'm always, always uh, happy to give opinions <laughs> and and having a talk. So no, uh, it's been great. And like I said, just thank you, thank you so much for having me on. And uh, looking forward to hearing uh, more and more of your of this uh, these podcasts as you, as you make them. I think they've been great, and i have really really enjoyed them.
0: Appreciate it, appreciate it. Well, good luck in the rest of, uh, well, the beginning of the season. Uh, usually we'd be wrapping it up, but good luck as uh, ECNL um, takes off GA, um, all these different showcases. All Good luck to all the coaches. And uh, I know you have a lot more trips to Arizona, but appreciate it, Dan. Thank you, and thank you guys for listening. Have a great week. Thanks for listening to The Soccer Cat. Reach out on social media or via email. Let us know who you want to hear from or topics that you'd like to hear about.
1: Thanks for listening, and as always, who will be capped next?